Chapter 22 of On Secret Service, Detective Mystery Stories Based on Real Cases Solved by Government Agents, by William Nelson Taft. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 22, The Looting of the CTC. There was a wintry quality in the night itself that made a comfortable chair and an open fire distinctly worth the payment of a luxury tax. Add to this the fact that the chairs of the library den of William J. Quinn, formerly Bill Quinn, United States Secret Service, were roomy and inviting, while the fire fairly crackled with good cheer, and you'll know why the conversation, after a particularly good dinner on the evening in question, was punctuated by pauses and liberally interlarded with silences. Finally, feeling that it was really necessary that I say something, I remarked upon the fierceness of the wind and the biting, stinging sleet which accompanied a typical January storm. "'Makes one long for Florida,' I added. "'Yes,' agreed Quinn, or even some point farther south. On a night like this you can hardly blame a man for heading for Honduras, even if he did carry away a quarter of a million of the bank's deposits with him. "'Huh? Who's been looting the local treasury?' I asked, thinking that I was on the point of getting some advance information. "'No one that I know of,' came from the depths of Quinn's big armchair. I was just thinking of Florida and warm weather, and that naturally led to Honduras, which, in turn, recalled Rockwell to my mind. Ever hear of Rockwell? Don't think I ever did. What was the connection between him and the quarter million you mentioned? Quite a bit. Rather intimate, as you might say but not quite as much as he had planned. However, if it hadn't been for Todd... Todd? Yes, Ernest E. Todd, of the Department of Justice. Extra Ernest, they used to call him, because he'd never give up a job until he brought it in, neatly wrapped and ready for filing. More than one man has cause to believe that Todd's parents chose the right name for him. He may not have been much to look at, but he sure was earnest. Take the Rockwell case, for example, Quinn went on, after a preliminary puff or two to see that his pipe was drawing well. No one had the slightest idea that the Central Trust Company wasn't in the best of shape. Its books always balanced to a penny. There was never anything to cause the examiner to hesitate and its officials were models of propriety, particularly Rockwell, the cashier. Not only was he a pillar of the church, but he appeared to put his religious principles into practice on the other six days of the week as well. He wasn't married, but that only boosted his stock in the eyes of the community, many of which had daughters of an age when wedding bells sound very tuneful and orange blossoms are the sweetest flowers that grow. When they came to look into the matter later on, nobody seemed to know much about Mr. Rockwell's antecedents. He'd landed a minor position in the bank some fifteen years before, 
and had gradually lifted himself to the cashiership. Seemed to have an absolute genius for detail and the handling of financial matters. So it was that when Todd went back home on a vacation and happened to launch some of his ideas on criminology, ideas founded on an intensive study of Lombroso and other experts, he quickly got himself into deep water. During the course of a dinner at one of the hotels, E.E. E. commenced to expound certain theories relating to crime and the physical appearance of the criminal. "'Do you know,' he inquired, "'that it's the simplest thing in the world to tell whether a man, or even a boy for that matter, has criminal tendencies? There are certain unmistakable physical details that point unerringly to what the world might call laxity of conscience.' but which is nothing less than a predisposition to evil, a tendency to crime. The lobes of the ears, the height and shape of the forehead, the length of the little finger, the contour of the hand, all these are of immense value in determining whether a man will go straight or crooked. Employers are using them more and more every day. The old-fashioned phrenologist, with his half-formed theories and wild guesses, has been displaced by the modern student of character, who relies upon certain rules which vary so little as to be practically immutable. "'Do you mean to say,' asked one of the men at the table, "'that you can tell a man is a criminal simply by looking at him?' "'If that's the case,' cut in another, "'why don't you lock em all up?' But it isn't the case, was Todd's reply. The physical characteristics to which I refer only mean that a man is likely to develop along the wrong lines. They are like the stars, which, as Shakespeare remarked, incline but do not compel. If you remember, he added, the fault, dear Brutus, lies in ourselves. Therefore, if a detective of the modern school is working on a case, and he comes across a man who bears one or more of these very certain brands of cane, he watches that man very carefully, at least until he is convinced that he is innocent. You can't arrest a man simply because he looks like a crook, but it is amazing how often the guideposts point in the right direction. "'Anyone present that you suspect of forgery or beating his wife?' came in a bantering voice from the other end of the table. "'If you're in earnest,' answered the government agent, "'lay your hands on the table.' And everyone present, including Rockwell, cashier of the Central Trust Company, placed his hands, palm upward, on the cloth, though there was a distinct hesitation in several quarters. Slowly, deliberately, Todd looked around the circle of hands before him. Then, with quite as much precision, he scanned the faces and particularly the ears of his associates. Only once did his gaze hesitate longer than usual, and then not for a sufficient length of time to make it apparent. "'No,' he finally said. I'd give every one of you a clean bill of health. Apparently, you're all right, but, and he laughed, remember, I said apparently. 
so don't blame me if there's a murder committed before morning and one or more of you is arrested for it. That was all there was to the matter, until Todd, accompanied by two of his older friends, left the grill and started to walk home. "'That was an interesting theory of yours,' commented one of the men. "'But wasn't it only a theory? Is there any real foundation of fact?' "'You mean my statement that you can tell by the shape of a man's head and hands whether he has a predisposition to crime?' Yes. It's far from a theory, inasmuch as it has the support of hundreds of cases which are on record. Besides, I had a purpose in springing it when I did. In fact, it partook of the nature of an experiment. You mean you suspected someone present? Not suspected, but merely wondered if he would submit to the test. I knew that one of the men at the table would call for it. Someone in a crowd always does, and I had already noted a startling peculiarity about the forehead, nose, and ears of a certain dinner companion. I merely wanted to find out if he had the nerve to withstand my inspection of his hands. I must say that he did, without flinching. But who was the man? I barely caught his name, replied Todd, and this conversation must be in strict confidence. After all, criminologists do not maintain that every man who looks like a crook is one. They simply state and prove that ninety-five percent of the deliberate criminals, men who plan their wrong well in advance, bear these marks, and the man who sat across the table from me tonight has them. To an amazing degree. Across the table from you? Why, that was Rockwell, cashier of the Central Trust. Precisely, stated Todd, and the only reason that I am making this admission is because I happen to know that both of you bank there. But, protested one of the other men, Rockwell has been with them for years. He's worked himself up from the very bottom and had hundreds of chances to make away with money if he wanted to. He's as straight as a die. Very possibly he is, Todd agreed. That's the reason that I warn you that what I said was in strict confidence. Neither one of you is to say a word that would cast suspicion on Rockwell. It would be fatal to his career. On the other hand... I wanted to give you the benefit of my judgment, which, if you remember, you requested. But it didn't take a character analyst to see that the Department of Justice man had put his foot in it, so far as his friends were concerned. They were convinced of the cashier's honesty, and no theories founded on purely physical attributes could swerve them. They kept the conversation to themselves, but Todd left town feeling that he had lost the confidence of two of his former friends. It was about a month later that he ran into Weldon, the federal bank examiner for that section of the country, and managed to make a few discreet inquiries about Rockwell and the Central Trust Company without, however, obtaining even a nibble. "'Everything's flourishing,' was the verdict. 
Accounts straight as a string, and they appear to be doing an excellent business. Fairly heavy on notes, it's true, but they're all well endorsed. Why'd you ask? Any reason to suspect anyone? Not the least, lied Todd. It's my home town, you know, and I know a lot of people who bank at the CTC. Just like to keep in touch with how things are going. By the way, when do you plan to make your next inspection? Think I'll probably be in there next Wednesday. Want me to say hello to anybody? No, I'm not popular in certain quarters, Todd laughed. They say I have too many theories, go off half-cocked and all that sort of thing. Nevertheless, the Department of Justice operative arranged matters so that he reached his home city on Tuesday of the following week, discovering, by judicious inquiries, that the visit of the examiner had not been forecast. In fact, he wasn't expected for a month or more. But that's the way it is best to work. If bank officials know when to look out for an examiner, they can often fix things on their books, which would not bear immediate inspection. Weldon arrived on schedule early the following morning and commenced his examinations of the accounts of the First National, as was his habit. As soon as Todd knew that he was in town, he took up his position outside the offices of the Central Trust, selecting a vantage point which would give him a clear view of both entrances of the bank. Possibly, he argued to himself, I am a damn fool. But, just the same, I have a mighty well-defined hunch that Mr. Rockwell isn't on the level, and I ought to find out pretty soon. Then events began to move even quicker than he had hoped. The first thing he noted was that Jaffrey, one of the bookkeepers of the CTC, slipped out of a side door of the bank and dropped a parcel into the mailbox, which stood beside the entrance. Then a few minutes later a messenger came out and made his way up the street to the State National, where, as Todd, who was on his heels, had little trouble in discovering, he cashed a cashier's check for $150,000, returning to the Central Trust Company with the money in his valise. Of course, Todd reasoned, Rockwell may be ignorant of the fact that Weldon doesn't usually get around to the State National until he has inspected all the other banks. Hence, the check will have already gone to the clearinghouse and will appear on the books merely as an item of $150,000 due, rather than as a check from the Central Trust. Yes, he may be ignorant of the fact, but it does look funny. Wonder what that bookkeeper mailed. Working along the last line of reasoning, the government operative stopped at the post office long enough to introduce himself to the postmaster, present his credentials, and inquire if the mail from the box outside the Central Trust Company had yet been collected. Learning that it had, he asked permission to inspect it. "'You can look it over if you wish,' stated the postmaster. "'But, of course, I have no authority to allow you to open any of it. 
Even the postmaster general himself couldn't do that. Certainly, agreed Todd. I merely want to see the address on a certain parcel, and I'll make affidavit, if you wish, that I have reason to suppose that the mails are being used for illegal purposes. That won't be necessary. We'll step down to the parcel room and soon find out what you want. Some five minutes later, Todd learned that the parcel which he recognized, a long roll covered with wrapping paper, so that it was impossible to gain even an idea of what it contained, was addressed to Jaffray, the bookkeeper, at his home address. "'Thanks. Now, if you can give me some idea of when this'll be delivered, I won't bother you any more. "'About five o'clock this afternoon? Fine.' and the man from Washington was out of the post office before anyone could inquire further concerning his mission. A telephone call disclosed the fact that Weldon was then making his examination of the Central Trust Company books and could not be disturbed, but Todd managed to get him later in the afternoon and made an appointment for dinner on the plea of official business which he wished to discuss. That afternoon he paid a visit to the house of a certain Mr. Jafferay and spent an hour in a vain attempt to locate the bank examiner. Promptly at six o'clock that official walked into Todd's room at the hotel to find the operative pacing restlessly up and down, visibly excited, and clutching what appeared to be a roll of paper. "'What's the matter?' asked Weldon. "'I'm on time.' didn't keep you waiting a minute. No, snapped Todd. But where have you been for the last hour? Been trying to reach you all over town. Great Scott, man. Even a human adding machine has a right to take a little rest now and then. If you must know, I've been getting a shave and a haircut. Anything criminal in that? Can't say that there is and Todd relaxed enough to smile at his vehemence. But there is in this, unrolling the parcel that he still held, and presenting several large sheets of ruled paper for the examiner's attention. Recognize them? They appear to be loose leaves from the ledgers at the Central Trust Company. Precisely. Were they there when you went over the books this morning? I don't recall them, but it's possible they may have been. No, they weren't. One of the bookkeepers mailed them to himself at his home address while you were still at the First National. If I hadn't visited his house this afternoon in the guise of a book agent and taken a long chance by lifting this roll of paper, he'd have slipped them back in place in the morning and nobody'd been any the wiser. Then you mean that the bookkeeper is responsible for falsifying the accounts? Only partially. Was the cash okay at the Central Trust? Perfectly. Do you recall any record of a check for $150,000 upon the State National drawn and cashed this morning? No, there was no such check. Yes, there was. I was present when the messenger cashed it, 
and he took the money back to the CTC. They knew you wouldn't get around to the state before morning, and by that time the check would have gone to the clearing house, giving them plenty of time to make the cash balance to a penny. Whom do you suspect of manipulating the funds? The man who signed the check, Rockwell, the cashier. That's why I was trying to get hold of you. I haven't the authority to demand admittance to the Central Trust vaults, but you have. Then, if matters are as I figure them, I'll take charge of the case as an agent of the Department of Justice. Come on, was Weldon's response. We'll get up there right away. No use losing time over it. At the bank, however, they were told that the combination to the vault was known to only three persons, the president of the bank, Rockwell, and the assistant cashier. The president, it developed, was out of town. Rockwell's house failed to answer the phone, and it was a good half hour before the assistant cashier put in an appearance. When, in compliance with Weldon's orders, he swung back the heavy doors which guarded the vault where the currency was stored. He swung around, amazed. "'It's empty,' he whispered. "'Not a thing there save the bags of coin. "'Why, I put some $250,000 in paper money in there myself this afternoon.' "'Who was here at the time?' demanded Todd. "'Only Mr. Rockwell.' I remember distinctly that he said he would have to work a little longer, but that there wouldn't be any necessity for my staying. So I put the money in there, locked the door, and went on home. Do you know where Rockwell is now? At his house, I suppose. He lives at... I know where he lives, snapped Todd. I also know that he isn't there. I've had the place watched since five o'clock this afternoon, but Rockwell hasn't shown up. Like the money, I think we can say with the money, he's gone, disappeared, vanished. Then, said Weldon, it's up to you to find him. My part of the job ceased the moment the shortage was disclosed. I know that. And if you'll attend to making a report on the matter, order the arrest of Jafferay, and spread the report of Rockwell's embezzlement through police circles, I'll get busy on my own hook. Goodbye. And an instant later, Todd was hailing a taxi and ordering the chauffeur to pick all the speed laws in reaching the house where Rockwell boarded. Examination of the cashier's room and an extended talk with the landlady, failed, however, to disclose anything which might be termed a clue. The missing official had visited the house shortly after noon, but had not come back since the bank closed. He had not taken a valise or suitcase with him, declared the mistress of the house, but he had seemed just a little bit upset. Quickly, but efficiently, Todd examined the room, even inspecting the bits of paper in the wastebasket and pawing over the books which lined the mantel. Three of the former he slipped into his pocket, 
and then, turning, inquired, "'Was Mr. Rockwell fond of cold weather?' "'No, indeed,' was the reply. "'He hated winter. "'Said he never was comfortable from November until May. "'He always—' "'But the queer gentleman, as the landlady afterward referred to him, "'was out of the house before she could detail her pet story "'of the cashier's fondness for heat, no matter at what cost. "'No one at the station had seen Rockwell board a train,' but inquiry at the taxicab offices revealed the fact that a man, with his overcoat collar turned up until it almost met his hat brim, had taken a cab for a nearby town where it would be easy for him to make connections either north or south. Stopping only to wire Washington the bare outline of the case, with a suggestion that the Canadian border be watched, Though it is almost certain that Rockwell is headed south, Todd picked up the trail at the railroad ticket office, some ten miles distant, and found that a man answering to the description of his prey had bought passage as far as St. Louis. But, despite telegraphic instructions, the St. Louis police were unable to apprehend anyone who looked like Rockwell, and the government operative kept right on down the river stopping at memphis to file a message to the authorities in new orleans it was precisely a week after the looting of the central trust company that todd stood on the docks in new orleans watching the arrival of the passengers and baggage destined to go aboard the boat for honduras singly and in groups they arrived until when the all ashore signal sounded the operative began to wonder if he were really on the right trail. Then, at the last minute, a cab drove up, and a woman, apparently suffering from rheumatism, made her way toward the boat. Scenting a tip, two stewards sprang to assist her, but Todd beat them to it. "'Pardon me, madam,' he said. "'May I not—drat that fly!' and with that he made a pass at something in front of his face, and accidentally brushed aside the veil which hid the woman's face. He had barely time to realize that, as he had suspected, it was Rockwell, disguised, before the woman had slipped out of the light wrap which she had been wearing, and was giving him what he later admitted was the scrap of his life. In fact, for several moments, he not only had to fight Rockwell, but several bystanders as well, for they had only witnessed what they supposed was a totally uncalled-for attack upon a woman. In the mix-up that followed, Rockwell managed to slip away, and, before Todd had a chance to recover, was halfway across the street, headed for the entrance to a collection of shanties which provided an excellent hiding place. Tearing himself loose, Todd whipped out his revolver and fired at the figure just visible in the gathering dusk, scoring a clean shot just above the ankle, a flesh wound that ripped the leg muscles without breaking a bone. With a groan of despair, Rockwell toppled over, clawing wildly in an attempt to reach his revolver. 
but Todd was on top of him before the cashier could swing the gun into action, and a pair of handcuffs finished the career of the man who had planned to loot the CTC of a quarter million in cold cash. "'The next time you try a trick like that,' Todd advised him on the train that night, "'be careful what you leave behind in your room.' The two torn letterheads of the Canadian Pacific nearly misled me, but the other one, referring to the Honduran line, plus the book on Honduras and the fact that your landlady stated that you hated cold weather, gave you dead away. Of course, even without that, it was a toss-up between Canada and Central America. Those are the only two places where an embezzler is comparatively safe these days. I hope, for the sake of your comfort, they give you plenty of blankets in Joliet. Quinn paused a moment to repack his pipe, and then, So far as I know, he's still handling the prison finances, he added. Yes, they found at the trial that he had had a clean record up to the moment he slipped but the criminal tendencies were there, and he wasn't able to resist temptation. He had speculated with the bank funds, covered his shortages by removing the pages from the ledger and kiting checks through the state national, and then determined to risk everything in one grand clean-up. He might have gotten away with it, too, if Todd hadn't spotted the peculiarities which indicated moral weakness. However, you can't always tell. No one who knew Mrs. Armitage would have dreamed that she was what she was. Well, I inquired, what was she? That's what puzzled Washington and the State Department for several months, replied Quinn. It's too long a story to spin tonight. That's her picture up there if you care to study features and I went home wondering what were the crimes of which such a beautiful woman could have been guilty. End of chapter 22